Thank you for listening to Christian Challenge at K-State's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, follow us on Instagram or visit our website. Hope you enjoy this episode. Well, good morning. It's time to wake up. Feeling a little groggy this morning. It's good to see you as we continue in our study of beauty. And our message this morning is entitled, Beautiful in Time. Can you trust God in your times and in your seasons? In your, we talked about this yesterday, in your lot in life. Where you are right now, in this time, in this place, trusting God and seeing beauty in time. We live in this post-Genesis 3 world, as we've been talking about, pursuing worldly pursuits that is a chasing after the wind, and they're futile, they don't amount to anything. We're trying to recover Eden, we're trying to find beauty. Solomon trying to find, tried to find beauty, couldn't find it. We began with brokenness on that first uh, morning, and then last night, we looked at the gospel, we looked at Christ to see beauty in what He has done, to remind ourselves that this God that we serve is a forgiving God. There's abundant redemption with Him. And so we continue on this morning. We've started a new year, and I want us to think about as we start New Beginnings 2024, all that took place in 2023, there's much to be thankful for. I think if you would take stock of your life, you should be able to find things to be thankful for. And there's also things that you look back at, and I'm sure that you lament they're troubled. It goes back to Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. You're sorrowful. So we consider, how do we consider those disquiets, I'm going to use this strange phrase, disquiet and delights. Those things, the stuff of life, the things that trouble us and the things that delight us. What perspective will we have as we pursue beauty? We need wisdom. And Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. And so we're going to go back there again, a continuation on the theme. Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, continuation of this theme of the fatherly hand of God. You just sang about it. Can you trust God in your times? Isn't He good? Isn't He good in all that He does? You sang about it. Can you live it out? Believing that, that God is good in all that He does in the season of your life and seeing those troubling things that you have and being able to see beauty. How, do, how in the world do I see beauty in the trials and the afflictions of life? That's what Solomon is going to help us with this morning to be convinced of his goodness. In Ecclesiastes 3, I want to start, though, with a definition. I want to talk about providence. Perhaps you've heard this word. 
what is providence? What does that mean? And I think that Ecclesiastes 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15, I think the theme is providence, the God of uh, all things, providentially working out things in your life, in your times, in your seasons. What is providence? I want you to consider, consider uh, a catechism. I don't know if you are familiar with that. Catechism is a question and answer sort of training that you memorize and then you, you understand uh, theological truths. Well, there's a catechism way back in 1563 called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism defines providence in this way. What is providence? This is the providence. Answer. The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by His hand, He upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that the herbs and the grass, the rain, the drought, the fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things, all things, come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. All things. So Provident John Piper has a book on providence, and he defines providence this way. It's God's sovereignty matched with God's purpose. There's nothing in this universe that's outside of the control of the Almighty. Nothing escapes His government. Nothing escapes His plan. Note the last phrase in this catechism answer. All things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. As Christians, you and I must see God and must believe that God is our Heavenly Father, that He is good and gracious and loving and kind, so that we might be able to declare with the psalmist, when the psalmist says this, the Lord is righteous in all His ways, all His ways, and He's kind in all His works. Psalm 145. So we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We uh, ended, uh, I think, our first session at the end of chapter 2, verse 24. You might put your eyes there for a second before we jump into 3. 1, look at 2.24. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink, find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For who... Apart from Him, I'm sorry, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is the glimmer of hope at the end of Ecclesiastes 2, and we move in to time for everything. So follow along as we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has 
made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You've heard this before. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. A time for everything. Solomon sets the stage in verse 1. If you see, this is almost a chiastic phrase. It's, if you see it closely, if you look closely, it's in the form of an X. Everything a season, a time for every matter. Season and time are the middle terms of that sort of X diagram. And that's the focus of this whole passage. It's a clue to what to expect. Seasons and times. When you think of seasons, what do you think of? Fall, winter, spring, summer, planting season, harvest, holiday season that we just came through. And the rainy season, maybe, if you're from the east, east-east, monsoon season. Right? There are seasons that we have. We think of times, you think of a particular event, maybe an appointment on the calendar, maybe a time on the clock, the here and the now, the right now. Okay, so you have seasons that are extended periods, and then you have times that are like here and now, right now, an appointment on the calendar. Psalm 9.9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. So this word can have a narrow focus or a broad focus, seasons and times. The question is, what season are you in right now? Now, what time? It's like 9, whatever, 10.50. What season are you in? You're a student, most of you, right? So you're in a season of learning, a season of preparation, a season of exploration, trying to figure out life, trying to figure out what do I want to do. Here's some good news. You get to be my age, you still don't know what you want to do. Like, I'm still trying to figure that out. So, so the good news, don't, you don't have to figure it out when you're 19, 20, 24. But what season are you in? But there's other seasons. I mean, there's other things going on in this. It's not just that you're a student trying to figure out life with your parents. You're moving away. You're getting out of the house. You're independent. You're trying, you know, you're paying your own rent. You're doing these things on your own. My wife and I have just entered into a new season ourselves. We, uh, I'm right there in the middle. I'm halfway home. Probably more than halfway, according to Psalm 90. I've, 80, 70, 80 years, and I'm, I'm more than that. Well, I'm not more than 70 or 80, but I'm more than halfway to that. So we've entered uh, this new season. Our children have grown. They're, they're in college. They're almost out of college. Two of them are married. My mom and dad are still alive, but my father struggles. He's got some serious health issues. My mom um, is a 100% caregiver for my dad. And so here I am in the middle, my wife and I, we're, we've watched our kids grow up, and they're getting married, 
And I've got my mom and dad on this side, and they're declining, and I'm in the middle. And I'm trying to figure out what it means to still be a son. We're called to honor our parents, right? That's the Bible, honor, honor your father and mother. But I'm 50 years old. I mean, I'm, I'm, what does that mean when your parents are dying? And then I'm still a father, but now my kids are growing. So what does that mean to be a father to grown children? It's my season. It's not easy. Like, it doesn't get easy. Just because you get to be older doesn't mean you know what you're doing. And I'm still learning. My season. This is the season that God has me in. What season does God have you in? Seasons and times. You read these first eight verses and you can see things that are in our control in our times and you can see things that are out of our control. Look, for instance, at verse 2. There's a time to be born and a time to die. I was just visiting with a couple young ladies. We, we all share December birthdays. Nobody decide. We didn't get to decide that. Some of you guys get your presents scattered out throughout the year, right? We get all our presents in December. There's a time to be born, right? We didn't decide that. Every last one of us in this room has a calendar date right now. God knows our day, a time to die. We're not in control. But you look at the rest of this and you can kind of see time to break down, a time to build up. Some of you guys like to do building projects. Some of you guys like to tear things down, right? Demolition. There's times to do things, a time to weep. Sometimes that's not in our control. Time to laugh, yeah. Sometimes that's in our control. Let's watch a funny movie. Let's do some fun things. But you kind of read through this and you see there's these, this variation of time and season. Times that are in our control. Times that aren't in our control. I want you to see the providence of God. Remember, His sovereign control with His purpose. His fatherly hand in all that you have right now. This interaction between what we do, the plans and the purposes that we make. Some of you guys are making Resolutions. Robbie was telling me he saw a, a meme on January 1st that said, well, at least I got 2025 to look forward to. It's like their resolution's already been blown, right? But we make time, we, we have purposes, we set goals, we make resolutions. And all of life is under the sun. You see that back in verse 1. Every matter, every matter, that word is desire. Some of your versions say activity or event. It's those things that we plan, that we purpose, that we set our minds to. So there's a time and there's a season for all the activities, all the delights, all these things that we want to do. Life under the sun. Notice the time structure even of these first eight verses. This repetitive phrase, a time and a time, a time and a time. Just look at it, a time and a time, a time and a time. It's repetitive. It's back, it goes back to Ecclesiastes 1 that we talked about. Activities come and activities go. Seasons come and seasons go. In two days, we're all going to leave. This came and went. It was a thing on the calendar. Right? But how I want this to be eternal in your hearts. How I want this to matter for eternity for you. 
not just the time on the calendar. There's this repetitive nature to life. I want you to see, though, that he uses these polar extremes here in verses 2 through 8. Breaking down and building up. Weeping and laughing. Do you see these polar opposites? Embrace, refrain from embracing. Seek, lose. That's a figure of speech called a merism. Now, what Solomon is doing here and using a merism is he's saying that basically a merism is a device where they use polar opposites to speak of things that include everything in between. Okay? So you're using polar opposites. So, so uh, this, is, this happens all the time in my house. I'm asking my wife, where are my keys? I can't find my keys. Honey, have you seen my keys? And I could say something like, well, I've searched high and low for my keys. What does that mean? I've searched everywhere. That's what Solomon's doing here. He's using these extremes to talk about everything in between. And you have this poetic list of life right here. And I think it serves a function as you're trying to interpret Scripture. What function? I've read this time and again. I'm like, what do, what do I do with this? Is this vague? And I don't, I'm not quite sure what to do with these first eight verses. I think it can serve two ways as you try to apply this. Okay, you can identify many of activities that go on in these few verses. And so you want to immediately try to apply those to your life, see what they mean. In our church, we've welcomed, in verse 2, we've welcomed so many babies into our midst. We've got, we got a church with a lot of young families, getting babies, and a lot of pregnant ladies, and, and babies being born. I was a part of two funerals last year in my church. Um, so, so you have these events, right, that you can apply immediately. You can see how they work. Uh, we we want to clean out our garage. We want to clean out our closets, right? There's this time to keep and there's this time to cast away, verse 6. Sometimes you want to do spring cleaning and all that. You can see how these kind of affect our lives. You can kind of put yourself right there in the middle of them. But then there's this kind of vague, there's some vagueness to it too. Look at the end of verse 5, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. That could be some wide application of that. Is that an embrace of a friend? Is that an embrace of a spouse? Is there something more intimate going on? Why is it our time to refrain? Is that because that friend moved away? You can't hug that person anymore? Or is that because... As we had in our church, uh, someone's spouse died. There was a time to embrace, and there is a time that they will no longer embrace their spouse. Time to refrain from embracing. And there's no way to really, I mean, we could spend all day trying to figure out simple applications to these verses. I think the more likely function of verses 2 through 8 is this, that what Solomon is doing by using this repetitive nature of time and time and merism and all of this that's going on in the syntax, he's saying this, that this is the totality of life. All that is in between, this is the message that he's conveying, that life is made up of living and dying, of planting and harvesting, of killing and healing and building and demolishing and weeping and laughing and keeping and purging and mourning and dancing this is life. This is the stuff of life. That's what he's saying. 
And much of life that he depicts is within our desire. It's within our plans and purposes. And much of it is mysterious. There's this movement of time. Friends that you thought you would have for a lifetime move away. Or maybe you thought you'd live in a certain place forever and you were uprooted just recently. What you took a lifetime, your short lifetime to build is being taken away, either by you or you're watching it being taken away by the hand of providence, by God. God's doing something. He's taking something away that you thought you would have. And no one can predict what's happening to us this coming year. But there's, a there's a mystery to time in this disquiets and delights. We're disrupted, we're troubled, we're anxious on the one hand, and we're delighted on the other hand with all of the things of life. And we get a, a glimpse that even for all of our planned activity, we're limited. We're limited by providence. On the one hand, the day of our birth. On the other hand, by the day of our death. But sometimes, providence, things happen that are out of our control. Look at verse 8. There's a time for war and a time for peace. World events take us by surprise. And so how are we to see all things beautiful in light of God's purpose? Pick up in verse 9 then. You've already seen, he said this once. We talked about this last night. Or maybe it was yesterday morning. What gain is the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What, what gain is there? If, if everything is just a filling and an emptying, for every birth there is a death, for every building up there is a breaking down, what's the advantage? If what I do today is going to be undone tomorrow, what's the point? That's what he's saying. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 13. It's an unhappy business that God has given us in life. But notice, well, let me, let me, let me do something real quick. In verses 9 through 10, it might seem that he's bringing in a new idea, work. He didn't really say that in verses 2 through 8. What is the worker gain? Uh, what, what, you know, what gain does he have? What advantage does he have? Notice uh, this word work. The word is asa. It means to do or to toil, to make, to work. It's used 43 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually a big theme. The worker, the one who works. It's used six times in these 15 verses. To work, to do. Okay? So, when I'm, all the working that I'm doing, everything that I do, if life is made up of all this doing and then it gets undone, if what I do today gets undone tomorrow, what's the point? And so you probably can think about this in your life as a student. You just have these unending assignments. You just keep doing. You're just going to do another one tomorrow. And, oh, by the way, next semester I'll do it again. This project that I have, or maybe it's work that you do. And you don't usually have glamorous jobs when you're in college. I get that. It's sort of repetitive. I'm just going to do, do the same thing yesterday that I did today. It gets monotonous. Now, what gain is there? In our church, we have, like I said, we have so many young ladies. It's like, so after the 10th diaper gets dirty, you're going to do the 11th, right? 
After the hundredth dirty dish, you're going to do the hundred and first. After the sixth load of laundry, you're going to do the seventh. This is life. Mundane tasks at work. But watch what he does in verse 11. And here we come back to our theme. What gain is there in this unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with? Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful. In its time. Everything beautiful in its time. The everything in verse 11 goes back to the everything in verse 1. Look at verse 1. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter. He's picking up this phrase and he's bringing it back to verse 11. He's saying everything, all the stuff that we just read, verses 2 through 8, everything is going to be beautiful in time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. What is Solomon doing? He's focusing on time. Look how many things he talks about with time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. This is all in verse 11. He has put eternity, that's time, into man's heart. And then look at the end of verse 11. What God has done from beginning to end. So time is the focus. But also... The worker, you, me, the individual, is no longer the focus. Who's the focus of verse 11? What God has done. And that word, work, comes back, and you see that at the beginning of verse 11. He has made. He has made. God has done. Now the focus is on God's work, God's time. It doesn't deny that you and I are human agents. We can make decisions. We have free moral agency. But the emphasis shifts in verses 9 and 10 from what you and I do to what God does. In verse 11, it's the God who works, the God who does. And this is where the beauty comes in. Follow this. Catch this. Beauty must be seen in light of the fact that God is at work. Did you catch that? Do you remember where I'm trying to help us reframe our understanding of good and beautiful? It's that wobbly circle that needs to be modified into this perfect circle that God is defining what is beautiful and what is good. And the beginning of our understanding of this is to see that it's God at work. This is how we begin to define beauty. I have this vague memory from childhood, a picture that we had on our wall. It was a, pic, it was a still life of a, a, a basket of fruit or, or some flowers in a vase, or maybe it was both. It was this beautiful picture, idyllic, colorful, nice, serene, lovely. And underneath, it had this verse, verse 11. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And I thought, that's, that's wonderful, God makes everything beautiful in its time. And I'm 10, 12, I don't know how old I am. I'm just a young child. God can do whatever He wants. That makes sense. He's God. And that's nice when you're 10 or 12. When you get to be my age and you live 30 or 40 or 50 more years and life happens and you begin to wonder, does God really... Make everything beautiful in time. 
few years ago, I uh, had this strange thing happen to my ear. I have a disease, but it's not contagious, so you can sit, we can still hang out. It, it's this weird thing that happens. It gets full, like, you know, when you're sick and you kind of get a full ear. It gets full, but you're not, I'm not sick. It'll just get full, and it'll ring really loud, like, like annoying ringing. And it'll buzz, and it'll hum. And like when you put a seashell, if you've ever been to sea, put a seashell, you hear the roar, so it roars and it rings and it hums and it gets full and it just does that for days on end and it's annoying. But the worst part is at the end of it, what it's doing is it's actually building up fluid on its own and at the end, how it releases the fluid is through vertigo. You ever had vertigo? You don't ever want vertigo. If you've had it, you understand what I mean. It is the worst feeling I have ever experienced. The world spins nonstop. It doesn't, you cannot make it stop. It doesn't matter if you sit down, lie down, stand up, dark room, light room. It's excruciating. It's not painful, but it is the worst feeling. And you want, as we talked about the other night, to die. Does God make everything beautiful in time? Do we call hardships and losses of health? It's a permanent condition, according to the doctors. Losses of health they say that if it gets really bad, they go in and they cut the nerve. Thankfully, the Lord has preserved this enough that I haven't had to go that far. He's sustained me through this. But losses of life, losses of health, losses of finances, do we call bad things good? Is that what Solomon is saying? All things are beautiful in time? What are, what are you saying, Solomon? How do we reconcile our present experience with the truth? And yes, this is truth. You accept it as true. It's God's Word. Now, how do we accept this as true in light of our circumstances, in light of our experiences? How do we see beauty? Because as image bearers, we yearn for beauty. We look for significance. You look at verse at the middle of verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in time, and he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet what? So that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. There's something that God has put in us as image bearers that we love beauty, we long for goodness, we want to see significance, we don't understand how this time and this place in our experience is working out for good, and we long for that. And there's something in us that we can't figure it out. He's not given us the full picture of what's going on in our lives. And the reality is you and I can't always see the beauty. You want to look back at this last semester, last 2023, you want to see something beautiful. You, want, you hope for something beautiful in 2024. Life isn't always easy to see the beauty. It's inscrutable. We can only see the parts for the whole. 
One, uh, one author said, you, you ever seen a kaleidoscope? You know what that is where you turn the little thing? This is a really old. I don't even know if they do these. You turn the thing and all these little colors and movements and shapes. Listen to this. Uh, one author says this. The trouble for us is not that life refuses to keep still. Sometimes we want life to just be the same. It's not that life refuses to keep still, but that we only see a fraction of its movement and the subtle, intricate design of what's going on. Instead of changelessness, there's something better. There's this dynamic, divine purpose with a beginning and end. Instead of this frozen perfection that we want. We don't want anything to change. I want this frozen perfection. Instead of that, there's this kaleidoscopic movement of innumerable processes each with its own character and each its own period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time and contributing to the overall masterpiece of the one Creator. That's what God's doing. You look at this word beauty, it's like, I don't understand. Like Beauty doesn't, if I call things, how do I call hard things beautiful? Because the word beauty, almost every time in the Bible is used for a beautiful appearance. This word that, that Solomon used, the the beauty of Solomon, um, I'm sorry, the beauty of Job's daughters, the beauty of Sarah, the beauty of Rachel, the beauty of Ab- Abigail, the beauty of Esther, all of this beauty, even when they talk about a handsome man, David, Absalom, Joseph. And so when we, that's, that's, the hard, that's what's hard about talking about beauty. It's like, I want to think in those terms. And that's where we stumble. It's not physical appearance that, Psalm is, uh, that Solomon is talking about. It's not actually moral goodness either. Be careful. Rather, the word beauty in this context must be understood and clarified in the context to mean this. Fitness, listen, fitness or appropriateness or suitable for the time. You follow that. Fitness or appropriateness or suitable. Some of your Bibles might even say appropriate. He makes all things appropriate in its time. Or the New English translation, fit beautifully. The preacher, as one commentator says, is not pronouncing judgment upon the moral qualities of the actions that he enumerates, but he's calling attention to their fitness for the times and seasons to which they have been assigned by God. Your season right now has been assigned by God. The fitness of it. The appropriateness of it. The beauty of it. And so, I want to say this. We want to align our definition of beauty with God's definition of beauty. God is at work. Verse 11. God is at work in your life. And though we may not understand all that He is doing, the fact that He is doing it. Follow that. The fact that He is doing it makes meaning and beauty of our life and our experience. In other words, the only way that you and I can truly see life as beautiful is that we see our life as God's work. God's work. That what He is doing to us and in us is appropriate for our time, for our season. Beauty, then, is defined by God. Who God is 
and what God does. That's why we have to remind ourselves, just like last night, we preached to ourselves His character. God is good. He's generous. He's kind. Beauty is defined by God. This is like Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Drop down to verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better. You've heard this phrase already. There's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. We talked about this yesterday. There's nothing better. What, what, what Solomon is saying here in verses 12 and 13 is that we are to do good. He says that. There's nothing better for them to rejoice, to be joyful, and to do good. We're to do good. And then in verse 13, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That word take pleasure is to see good. See good. I want to do good and see good. That's what he's saying. There's nothing better than to do this. So in the spaces in between, verses 2 through 8, in the disquiets and the delights of life, in the hardships, the losses, the faded dreams, the hopes that have been shattered, in all of that, we return to the same theme, that God has given you simple, ordinary gifts. Food and drink, work, and your ability to enjoy these simple, ordinary things is God's gift to man. It's from His fatherly hand. So let me conclude with just a few thoughts. Solomon isn't saying some nihilistic or pessimistic mantra, let's eat Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What he's saying. He's saying, no, let's, let's eat and drink and be merry and enjoy our work because these are God's gifts to mankind. This is my season. This is what God has given by His fatherly hand. In our days that are perplexing and troubled, God is at work providing ordinary blessings for you, for your joy. And He's assuring you that all things will be made beautiful in time. Why? Because God is at work. It's God's work. We're, we're re redefining our definition. So, encouragement. Number one, God is at work in your life. Remember the definition. God's sovereignty matched with God's purpose. Paul is saying something to us in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, God is working in you. God is working in you. What? Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What He's doing in your life is His good pleasure. Can you trust God in His kindness and His goodness, that there's more going on to what He's doing than you can see. 
And He's working out all things for His good pleasure and for your good. He's working out all things to conform you to the image of Christ. If you are His follower, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's what we can say this morning. If if you've ever asked the question, God, what are you up to? What are you doing in my life? I don't understand it all. I can guarantee you this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'll guarantee you what He's doing. Whatever He's doing, He's conforming you more to the image of Christ. He's making you more like His Son. And so let me encourage you to do this, to fix your eyes on Jesus in this coming year. Think about the times and the seasons of Jesus. That He entered time and space, and He had times and seasons on your behalf. That God became flesh and dwelt among us so that He could enter into time and space And he partook of flesh and blood, lived among us, experienced pain and hurt and frustration. Consider this. He had these times when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. At one point, his time had not yet come because they tried to arrest him. And at another point, his time had come when he was in the garden. He experienced times. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So on the third hour, they crucified him. And on the ninth hour, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies, he's buried, but on the third day, he's raised to new life. Now he is seated at the right hand of God, where he makes intercession for you, his people. Christ entered time and space, experienced seasons. And are not these seasons, check this out, appropriately beautiful? Appropriately beautiful. Is not the Father orchestrating all of these events into the life of His Son? And are they not appropriately beautiful for you? On your behalf, for your salvation. Brothers and sisters, look again to Christ this morning in your times that you would entrust yourself to Him. Just as Jesus did not revile when He was reviled, when He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued to entrust Himself to the One who judges justly. He entrusted Himself to the Father's kind providence in His life. And therefore, you too, experiencing joy, delight, suffering, disquiets, you should entrust your soul to your faithful Creator while doing good. Let me pray for us, and I'll invite the worship team to come forward. Our Father, we...
Thank you for this word in Ecclesiastes. I thank you that you are kind and good and generous, Father, that you are beautiful, and that you bring beauty in our lives from the simple fact that you are at work, that you are working is part of the definition of beauty. And I pray that we could embrace that truth this morning. You would help us as we navigate the difficulties of life, as we navigate the joys of life, these ordinary blessings that we see all of this as your hand of kindness to us. So I pray your blessing on these students as we continue to worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.